been sitting down in the front and I've been thinking what a small world it is uh, what a small world it is I uh, I met Roland about 27 30 years ago um, in the context of a relationship that he had with Linus Morris when I was at Calvary Community as a youth pastor and when I, my wife and I went down to Orange County and planted a, a church, Coast Hills Community Church, in 1985 down there, uh, Roland had just left a church in Mission Viejo and uh, went to take, uh, plant a church in Danville. And we started a, um, about three years later, we started a round table of a group of pastors from around the country. We'd meet together in Carmel in, uh, in January and uh, we'd have a facilitator come and meet with us, about 10, 15 guys, and we would meet in the morning and we meet in the evening. We'd play golf in the afternoon or take off, whatever. But we would just kind of encourage and support and kind of talk to each other for about 13, 14 years. And Roland was a significant part of that, of that time. And um, we have kept in touch over, over the years. And so to see... Um, all the interweavings of this. And now for him to, you know, I met with your elders with regards to uh, somebody about a year and a half ago now, and I said, you know, you may want to talk to Roland about being this interim deal, and it just seemed to work out together. And then Roland said, you know what, you're looking for a senior pastor. You may want to call Danny Balesi, you know, because he's starting this deal. And I just thought, it's such a s small world. And... Uh, to know that he is and uh, his wife Patricia are in the hands of a congregation that is known for caring for people is, uh, is a neat thing for me to hear. Um, and, I, and I know you're going to take good care of them through this time. Um, another small world kind of thing. One of the other guys was part of that round table for those 15 years is a friend of mine, the pastor in Chino Hills. His name is Dave Steckline. And Dave is, has been at Cedar sinai Hospital for the last three months fighting for his life with leukemia. And he just had a bone marrow transplant the last two weeks ago and will be there for probably another month or so before he comes home and probably a six-month recovery. And he's fighting for his life every day as well, and I'm just thinking, here are these two brothers of mine. Uh, Going to be there together. Two congregations of people casting out prayers all over the world for these two guys who have made such a huge impact on his church around the world. Um, it's small world. <laughs> It's a small world. And uh, I sent out an email. I found out about this on uh, Friday afternoon. It came as a complete shock to me. I was sitting at uh, lunch with, uh, with Bill Berry, and he said, have you heard? And I said, no, I didn't. But I sent out a text to my other guys in the round table. So they're praying for Roland as well, and their congregations are as well. And I, uh, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for 
what I know God's going to do in and through this really, really difficult time. But I am honored to be here today to share that with you. Let me pray. Father, sometimes we really don't understand what you're doing. And we, yet we trust you. We know that you work in and through all things. And uh, there's to your glory and to our good, ultimately, our good. We pray that you would be glorified in and through this chapter of not only this man's life, but uh, also this church's life and the work that uh, you have for him to do still to be done. Lord, I know that his greatest desire this morning would be to be here, and if he wasn't here, it would be to be able to open up the word of God to them and to be able to share from his heart and experience what uh, you want to say to us. And so I pray that uh, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that's wide open before you now as we turn our attention to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. turning the corner (laughs) it was a couple of years ago now that uh, I uh, was coming up to two years I was uh, coming to my 59th birthday and um, I looked into the mirror one day and I said you know what you need to pay attention to a couple of things one you need to lose some weight and uh, and get in shape because you're not getting any younger. And, uh, and so I began a, a little routine of, uh, of, of starting doing some sit-ups and, uh, and some push-ups and just to change some eating habits. And I kind of got into this nice little groove where I said I was going to continue to do those kinds of things. And a little routine I kind of put together. And I remember after a couple of months... I uh, got up out of bed one morning getting ready to jump in the shower and I took my shirt off and as I was passing around the bed, my wife looked at me and she said, you've been working out, haven't you? And I said, well, you know, just starting these little sit-ups and, you know, I started with about 25 sit-ups and 10 push-ups and just kind of, and she said, no, 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 no. Yeah, I see some, I see some, something happening in your shoulders and this, and then she said, keep it up, keep it up. And so over the last two years, I have kind of kept it up, if you will. And so I do now between 1,000 and 2,000 sit-ups every night before I go to bed. I watch Seinfeld doing that, and I'm up to about 50 push-ups. And uh, it's been kind of a neat thing, a little kind of routine. But I, I remember in and through that time as I continued to do that, my wife said to me one, one day as, as I was leaving, you know, I hope... That not only you, but I hope that both of us will be doing stuff like that for the rest of our lives. And at the time, I said, do what? And she said, do the little things that help to keep us in good physical shape so that we can get the most out of our lives as we grow older. And as I was thinking about this passage that Paul is talking about this morning. 
in this series that you're doing. I, the same thing, I realized that Lisa's words to me that morning were so much different than what Paul wants to convey to his readers in this letter to the Philippians in second part of chapter 2. In a sense, what Paul is saying to them is, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to do the kinds of things that are going to keep you in shape to get the most out of your life and your walk with Christ. With Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. That's where I've been told that you are in your series on uh, the joy, what's it called? The joy of, the joy journey? Yeah. Chapter 2, and we're going to kind of look at uh, this passage from uh, chapter verses 12 through about verse 18. But I'm going to start with verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but not now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, stop right there. We're going to stop right there because there's some stuff here that I think we need to kind of just talk about. I want you to notice something. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit, we're going to talk a little theology this morning. I know that's, ooh, but we, we need to do that um, because I went to seminary, you know, and uh, I got to show you that, you know, there was some worthwhileness in going to, to seminary. I want to talk to you a little bit about what uh, theologians call soteriology. You know, how many of you know what soteriology, how many care what soteriology is? So, uh, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And salvation has to do with this idea of being at peace with God. And how we attain peace with God. And I want you to notice something here because Paul is talking about our salvation here. But I want you to notice this. He doesn't say, I want you to continue to work for your salvation. He says, I want you to continue to work out your salvation. And there's a difference. You see, the doctrine of salvation, as we understand the New Testament, is that salvation or this making peace with God or this saving relationship that God wants to have with us is not something that we work for. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, Paul wrote that it is by grace or God's unmerited favor, his unconditional, his initiated election, if you will, of us. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this, even this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not about us. Not what we work for. In fact, some people think that we're saved because of our good works or we try to do all these nice things and God said, no, no, that's not how it works. We don't work for our salvation. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, this, this gospel, this good news of, of salvation in Christ is, is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel it says a righteousness from God or being right with God is revealed. Not a, it's not a man-made thing. 
but it's a God-ordained thing. This righteousness that is by faith from first to last or from beginning to end, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So let me say it again here. Salvation isn't something that we work for or even for that matter, something that we do a part, that we kind of do our part and then God does his part to halfway meet us in the middle. No, he says, no, salvation is a God-initiated, God-orchestrated, and God-accomplished thing that he extends to us, to any, as a gift and bids us to respond and receive by faith. It's not something that we work for or even once we receive, have to work for in order to keep. Salvation is by grace through faith from beginning to end. But it is, Paul says, something that we are to work out. To work out. See, the reality is that we're not saved by our works, but our works do have a, a role. They Prove, if you will, our faith. And Paul says, I want you to work out your salvation. What does he mean by that? He says, I want you to make it operational. Operational. The word for work out in the Greek is this word, katergatsai. It, it, it's the idea of it is to bring something to completion. To go the distance to go all the way to the finish line. And it's as if Paul's saying, don't stop now because you've come to faith. Or just because you've come to Christ. Then don't go halfway, but keep making progress. And don't be satisfied with anything less than all that God has for you. I think that Roland would be saying the same kind of thing. Don't be satisfied until God calls you home because there's always something in front of you that God has for you to do. And right now, your pastor feels as though God isn't done with him yet. And he's moving ahead. Make it operational. Work out your salvation. Now, now here's the other thing he says. Is, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, my goodness. I don't know, how do you respond to that? But that, when I read that, I, I, I read something that's become sobering to me. And to be honest with you, I think it's meant to be. And that it should be. But we should also understand what he means by it. Because Paul isn't saying, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because I want you to go over into the corner and like a little baby get down in a crouch and, and just, you know, in a fetal position because you're afraid. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he doesn't mean with this idea of fright, but he means fear in the best sense of the word. The best sense of the word. And what he means is with a sense of great awe with a sense of reverence, with a sense of love and understanding of who God is and how big he is. Have you ever been overwhelmed by how big God is? There's a great movie. It's, well, it's not a great movie. It's really kind of really a corny movie. 
How many of you have ever seen the movie Joe and the Volcano? Do you remember that movie? <laughs> Joe and the, it's, it's about this goofy kind of guy who, who uh, decides he's going to, you know, he's going to jump into a volcano and somebody makes him really, you know, he's going to pay him and do all this kind of stuff. And so he, he, he decides he's going to go and he meets this gal who becomes like, I think three different gals are all the same person played by Meg Ryan, but they, they get on this boat to go over to this island and he's going to jump in and be a sacrifice into, into, this, uh, into this volcano. It's a really stupid movie. <laughs> and he buys these trunks for, uh, for his clothes. And there's about six of them that he buys. And they're huge trunks. And, but the guy talks him into it because he's got an unlimited bank account. He can, and he says, these trunks can float. You know, and he says, well, I don't know why I need them, but he buys six of them. And the boat, first night out, gets, our, gets wiped out and the boat goes down and the only thing saving is these six, these six deals. And he pulls them together and he and this gal are on the water just kind of floating around and they're out there day after day after day and he's losing it and she's out the whole time. There's this incredible scene. I don't know. If, again, Stupid movie. <laughs> stupid, stupid movie. But there's a scene where the full moon comes up over the, over the horizon of the water and it takes up the whole screen. I mean, it's just huge. And he kind of gets up and he's all shaky and he's aghast of what he's seeing and he said, Oh God whose name I don't even know. Forgive me. I forgot how big you are. How big you are. I've never forgot that scene. When you are encountered by something that is so big and wondrous, it scares you. It should scare you. Someone said that when we really love someone, we're not afraid of what they may do to us as much as we are afraid of what we might do to them. And you know what? Authentic and devoted followers of Jesus... For, for those kinds of people, for you, for me, the great fear that Paul is talking about is somehow we might make choices that would dishonor our God. That's what he's talking about. With a sense of fear of how big God is and how we don't want to dishonor him. And I think this is more what Paul means when he when he challenges here to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he also wants us to know and understand the second part of that, the comfort of the following verse. In verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And the word that Paul uses here for word and for act is the same word. It's the same Greek word. And it means... It's the same word where we get our English word energy. 
And there's two significant things we need to understand about this energy, this working and this acting. And that is that it's always used in the Bible to in, in speaking with an action of God. And it's always an effective action. It's always an effective action. And when I thought about this word, this energeian, I, 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 I likened it in my mind to a personal train. How many of you have joined a gym? Yeah. And how many of you go? <laughs> uh, I have joined gyms uh, over the years and I have paid my dues and I'm there for the first three weeks and then it's I've been paying for years to some gyms that I didn't go to uh, but everybody a gym now there, there's these personal trainers in the gym and I've worked with some of those guys at times and there's a value to that personal trainer because they not only teach but they push and they prod you and they challenge you to go a little bit more. But they also, if they're good, they encourage you. And in some cases, they spot for us and assist us and assure us that we can get there in one piece. And they do it because they want to help us. To make changes. And to see differences in our bodies. Well, Paul says, I want to give you a trainer as well. Jesus reminds us that he's the Holy Spirit. He's one who comes alongside and helps. Jesus uh, told his disciples he was going to go away, but it was a good thing that he went away because when he, if he was going to go away, God would send another counselor. Some interpret it as another comforter. The word in the Greek is parakletos, and it means somebody who comes alongside and helps. And Jesus said, he's the Holy Spirit. And not, he will not only be with you, but he will live in you. And he will remind you of the things that I said. And he will burn them into your heart. And he will give you power to do the things that I've talked about. If you follow his lead. You see, the goal of this salvation is more than we think it is. Some of us think that the goal of salvation is to go to heaven. I would venture to say that heaven's the frosting on the cake. <laughs> but the real goal of your salvation is to make us right with God so that we can be all that he intended us to be in the first place. And that is to be transformed into the image of Christ. Here. Here. Day by day, a little bit more like Jesus every day. William Barclay said the great tragedy of so many of us is that we will that we are never really any further along as Christians. We continue to be victims of the same habits and slaves, the same temptations and guilty of the same failures. But the truly Christian life is one of continual progress for it's a journey towards God of which heaven is the finish line. the finish line, and we're grateful for it.
before I came over this morning, uh, I stopped over at sunrise. I was a little late getting here this morning. My dad's at sunrise. He's up on the third floor, the, remis- the reminiscence floor where people with Alzheimer's are. And my father-in-law is on the second floor recovering from a stroke. And my mother-in-law is two doors down from my dad with dementia. It's a weird season. And, um, you know, the older I get and the more I see people going through the different stages of life or hear stories like this morning and realize um, um, I, I am more grateful for the reality of heaven or the promise of heaven and the reality that it is for those who leave us. And I'm reminded of that every time I see my dad. Paul says we can agree that that's the objective. Not just to go to heaven, but to become more like Jesus until we get to heaven. That that's where we're headed, that there are some signs that we need to be aware of to kind of help us evaluate our progress on this journey of becoming more like Jesus. And I don't think that these are necessarily exhaustive signs, but there are three things that that, I, that Paul talks about in this passage that I want to bring to our attention because they're things that we need to evaluate ourselves from time to time with. The first one is what I would call the, the sign of personal obedience. A personal obedience. In verse 14 it says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in the crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. The idea of personal obedience here, there are two kinds of things that Paul says, I want you to obey. The first one is to stop complaining. (laughs) And the second one is, is to uh, stop arguing. And the word for complain here is a word that means to murmur. In the Greek, it's the word gongumosos. It's it's the idea of a discontented muttering of a distrusting mob. He says, I want you to stop doing this. Now, he's not writing to pagans here. He's writing to Christians here. He's writing to churches here. I want you to stop complaining. And the reference here is to the children of Israel and their rebellious attitude toward God in the wilderness. And really behind it all is this attitude when we start to complain. And the attitude is simply this. It's kind of, what have you done for me lately? How many of you remember when the Rams were in town? Ram fans were notorious for, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> we were really fickle with our, with our team. I mean... Dodgers have gotten off to a great start. But over the last couple of years, 23 or 4 to be exempt, it's kind of, what have you done for me lately? We like winners, but we don't know when people go through difficulty. And so we start to complain as a, as a culture. Paul says, stop complaining. Stop complaining. I wonder how many people are missing what God has for them simply because we become addicted to whining and complaining. In uh, Numbers chapter 14, there is an encounter where God gets ticked off 
It says in verse 1, it says, That night all the people of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud and all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly to them. If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And God said, I have had it with these people. Moses intercedes, and God relents. And the Lord replies, I have forgiven them, as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs that I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me, time after time after time. Not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because of my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it as well. I wonder how many of us are missing what God may intend to have simply because we have gotten in the habit of being habitual complainers? Stop complaining, Paul says, and start obeying. Stop complaining, Paul says, and start living. Stop focusing on what you don't like and start focusing your time and your energy to make changes where it's necessary. Stop complaining about what you don't understand about God and start exercising some faith and taking some action on what you do understand about Him. Stop complaining and start living because your complaining spirit, Paul says, is in part what's keeping you from experience the life that you're looking for and the power and the promise of God in your life that you're asking for. Here's the second thing. He says, stop arguing. And the arguing he's talking about here is specific. It's divisive disputes. And they're not so much discussions. They're not so much even arguments in general that lead to solid conclusions. They're kind of useless arguments. In Titus chapter 1 or chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility to all people. In verses 9, it says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, or what these are, because these are unprofitable. And useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a man or woman is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Yikes. Stop arguing, Paul says. You know, uh, in a lot of churches, it can get to a place where you start having these discussions about theology that turn into things that split churches. 
My grandfather was a pastor for 50 years, an itinerant pastor. And one of the churches, uh, the church that he pastored, split one time. You know why they split? They split over one group of people wanted to take communion out of one cup, and another one wanted to take communion out of multiple cups. And they split the church over that. You say, well, how petty. Yeah, you know, people are pieces of work. <laughs> We're all a piece of work. And we can get our own agendas and miss the big picture. You know, I wonder if all the energy that's poured into discussing and debating and disputing minor points about theology that we differ on was instead poured into major points of the faith that we all agree on. Evangelism, discipleship, worship, mission, serving. I got a feeling the church would be in many ways a whole lot healthier across the board. And there are, in fact, the only person who takes any joy, if you will, in that that is not the case is the evil one. Who, if you don't remember, is our enemy, not our friend. And certainly not our Lord. Both of these injunctions, stop complaining and stop arguing, come under this, what I'm calling the sign of joyful obedience. Someone said that a healthy Christian in this area should be like a sheepdog. When a shepherd wants him to do something, he, he lies down at his feet and he looks intently into the shepherd's eyes and he listens without budging until he understands the mind of his master and then he jumps to his feet and he runs to do it. And the third characteristic he says, which is not less important, is that at no moment does the dog ever stop wagging his tail. <laughs> We got a puppy this last year. I'm a grandpa, four grandchildren. My daughters have moved out and started families of their own. And my wife said, we need some action around this house. And we got a little puppy who, I, I've never been a dog person. I've never been an animal person. I adore this dog. Her name is Maggie. And she never stops wagging her tail. She's always wanting to be with people and ourselves. The sign of obedience, of obedience. Here's the second one. It's the sign of noble character or of an excellent and shining example. Paul says in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast of the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. There are three words that Paul uses in this passage that describe this sign that is at work in us and that we are to be working out in our lives. And they're the words blameless and pure and faultless. Blameless, pure, and false. None of which are to imply some idea of absolute perfection, but all of them are to imply, uh, describe a wholehearted devotion to seeking and doing God's will. The first one is the word blameless. 
In the Greek, it, it expresses that which a Christian is to be in the world and is to be seen by the world as. Jesus said, you are the light of the world to his disciples. And he said, is it, you, know, you don't hide a light under a lamp. It's to be seen by all. And when he talks about this idea of being blameless, it is be this, this expression that's to be seen as consistent of who we claim to be. So that when the world looks at us and agree that they are consistent with who they, who they say and what they claim to be. When I think of this, I, I, in our cultural context today, I think of a guy that you've probably heard of. His name is Tim Tebow. I had an opportunity last year to go to a, a golf tournament, his uh, first golf tournament for his foundation. And there was about 250 people played in this golf tournament. And they came from all over the, you know, celebrities, football players, uh, people in the media, all kinds of things. And I got, I got invited to play in this golf tournament, which was really a lot of fun. Um, but at the end of the deal, they had this banquet, and they raised all this money. Uh, but the guy that got up was a guy from ESPN, and he said, I don't do these things, but I, the reason I'm here tonight is because this guy is the real deal. And I don't think he was even a Christian. He said, but I have opportunity to have been, and he's the real deal. He's consistent with what he says. The people who don't even like Tim Tebow said, I can't help but like him <laughs> because he's genuine and he's a real guy. And, that, and it's such a, 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 a light in that, in that context. The second word is this word pure. And the, the Greek word is the word that's why I hate Greek words. It's, it means innocent. It means innocent. And it describes what's a Christian to be within himself or within herself. And it literally means to be unmixed, unadulterated, uncontaminated. It refers to one's motives and to one's sincerity. And it asks this question. The question is, am I living a life that's true or am I being true to myself? Or am I living a lie? The third word is the word faultless. And that idea of faultless is, it means without blemish. And the Greek word amomos, is, it means it describes what a Christian is in the sight of God. It was a word that was often used in connection with sacrifices that were judged as fit to be offered on the altar of God. And so the kind of noble character that Paul is talking about here, working out our salvation, is one that gives an increasing evidence of the work of Christ in me as a kind of character that is consistent, consistent in the sight of the world, honest and sincere, and sincere within itself, and fit to stand the scrutiny of God himself. Remember when Jesus said, you're the light of the world, just preceding that he said, folks, you're the salt of the earth. And salt had three purposes in the ancient world. The first one was for seasoning, but they didn't even use that much because they had so many, you know, if you go to the Middle East, salt's the last thing they use. They got spices for everything. But salt was a seasoning, but more importantly, it was a preservative. 
They didn't have refrigerators in those days, and they would pack things in salt to keep things away. And it was also a purifying agent. And when Jesus said, you're the salt of the, the earth, he was, he was speaking about their character. He said, but if salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its character, he said, it's good for nothing. In essence, he said, you know what? You and I were never intended to be good for nothing in this world. You were never intended to be good for nothing in this community, ABF. You were never intended to be good for nothing in your neighborhood, at your workplace, among your circle of friends and influence. You are intended to be the salt of the earth. But if you lose your character and forget your character, you essentially are giving you're good for nothing spiritually. And that would be a shame. The question for us to ask from time to time is, how does my character match up to that right now? And we need to be asking ourselves that from time to time. And in some cases, there's no time like the present. I don't know if how often you take communion in this church, but you know what? Every time you take communion, these are some questions we need to ask ourselves. What's the shape of my purity, my blamelessness, my faultlessness, my character? Here's the last one. It's a sign of joyful service. Paul says, kind of wraps this up and he says but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me and essentially this idea that I want to say is one of the signs is, is if you're not serving you're missing you're missing the opportunity for God to work out your salvation. If you're not serving someone, if you're not serving somewhere, if you're not serving somehow, and service will always involve a sacrifice, but if you're not serving, you're not growing. And more importantly, the work and the character and the spirit of Christ is not growing in and through you. You know, one of the other small world pieces that I was talked about at the beginning of this was that not only have I had this experience with uh, Roland and we had this relationship over the years, it's kind of gone like, like this, but uh, when Patricia and Roland went to Africa two weeks ago, one of the people that went with them was the pastor that, I, that succeeded me at Coast Hills Community Church and his wife. And I was in uh, Easter services at Coast Hills this last week and heard his recap of that experience in Africa and it has changed his life and that has had an effect at Coast Hills. In fact, he came back and he said, you know, one of the things that I saw was how one church can make a difference in a community if they were convinced that God was working in and through them. And he said, we have spent all this time talking about loving God. 
for the next month, I want to release and commission you as a church, 5,000 people into this community, to start loving your neighbor in ways that serve them and bring honor to God. And he commissioned 5,000 people, several hundred small groups, to get together and pray. He said, where do you want us to serve others in a way that brings glory to you and benefit to them and joy to us as a church as we hear the stories. Now here's the final question. How does your walk and my walk in life with Christ match up to the evidence of those signs right now? Because you know what, folks? The signs don't lie. The signs don't lie. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling or with a sense of diligence and seriousness. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, kind of just like the same way 59-year-old man started to make some changes with some changes in eating and exercise. Spending some time eating the Word of God on a regular basis and acting it out. Putting it into practice. Time alone with God. Obeying Him. Hearing and understanding and then putting it into action. The truth is, that alone will change your life. And not only your life, but great possibility, countless other people around you. Let me pray. Father, you are a good God who's extended amazing grace to the likes of us. And Lord, I thank you for that privilege to be called one who's responded to that with faith. And Lord, you are working in this church, but there is work to be done. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would find this congregation increasingly faithful to the call of continuing to work out their salvation with a sense of awe and gratitude and love and dependence on your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may it not only change them, but Lord, may it begin and continue to change countless other people around them who you are calling to every segment of this community and society to be salt and light to your glory to the benefit of others and to their own joy we pray in Jesus name Amen